James, you don't look a day older, my friend. What a joy it is to be back here. I hope you guys are um, having a great morning. I know I am. It's been just the, the, the power of the Spirit already in worship, and to see so many familiar faces has been such a joy. Uh, I've got more gray hair on my head, more on my face, and, uh, and things have changed, but some things remain the same, and that's always good to come home. We've spent so many formative years of our life here, and it's always a special place, and truly an honor to, uh, to teach you this morning. I know how well taught you are. Uh, it, it puts me in a difficult position because I get most of my content and great jokes from Pastor Sandy, so, you know, we'll do our best, but uh, if you would this morning, we're going to dive right into the Word of God, John chapter 12, if you have your Bibles. If you don't have your Bibles, you can raise your hand up real quick, and one of the ushers will get one to you. Uh, And John chapter 12 this morning. I want to read this passage and then we'll pray and dive into the word together. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. John chapter 12. John writes this. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who, has, who had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. And there they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had the money box, and he used to take what was put into it. But Jesus said, let her alone, she has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that as we look into your word, that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit of God has to say to us, that our hearts would be open to this beautiful picture of what sacrificial worship truly looks like, and more importantly, the value and the worth of the one whom we worship. Lord, we ask that you would encourage us, exhort us, challenge us if needed, that we can give you, as it were, our lives poured out as an offering unto you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So I'd like to start off the message with a question. Don't answer it out loud, but think about it in your heart as we move through the passage. Uh, What is worth the most to you? Now I know that that's kind of a, Josh, it's not really a fair question. I mean, the right answer is supposed to be Jesus, right? But think about that in terms of your value system. You know, every person lives their life based on a structure of priorities, of decisions, and the things that they build their lives around. We would call this a value system. And everyone has one. And here's something I've learned about your value system. The more valuable something becomes to you, the more difficult it is to what? Let it go. Things get attached in our hearts, to our emotions, to our lives. And when it comes time to Cut the cord, so to speak. Sometimes that is a challenging thing. My, my oldest daughter just got engaged to be married. So 
I kind of, uh, I'm, I'm sensing that letting, letting go of something that's very valuable to me and trusting that there's a greater value on the other end of that decision. But when it comes to the things you value, sometimes you, you make a discovery that changes your value, perspective, or structure on something. I remember uh, years ago, we had a family at a church I was pastoring, and they were moving out of town and going onto the mission field, and they had a bunch of stuff at their house they were trying to get rid of. So I got a call and said, listen, I don't know if you like baseball cards, but I've got a room full of baseball cards. And so uh, I collected baseball cards a little bit when I was younger, and he said, why don't you come? I got, I got some bikes for the kids. Just come grab anything you want. We're leaving. So I walk in this room, and it, right, it's like boxes. It's just stacked up against the wall, baseball cards, and this whole room just... And he said, just, just grab something. So I went and I found this little cardboard box that was wrapped up in tape. And I said, I'll just take this. Probably wise that I don't take any more of that. <laughs> and so I, I got home, threw my truck, didn't think much more of it. And that night when I finally got, opened, got around to opening the box, uh, I opened it up expecting to see a bunch of random worthless baseball cards and saw the first card on the top said Mickey Mantle and then Willie Mays. And then Joe DiMaggio, and the list just went on and on and on in these cases. And it was just, I, said, I called him up. I said, hey, do you know what you gave me? He said, yeah, but you can have it. Let's just say that the box went from a little cardboard shoebox that I was going to throw in the back of the closet to something a little more valuable in my mind. Think about what's valuable to you and what you've discovered to find that value. Typically, the only time I've ever seen someone give up something that was truly valuable to them is when they found something that was more valuable that was worth the cost of the other thing that was valuable to them. For many Americans, I, I, sometimes I chuckle in, in sorrow at what, what I see we're willing to go through and give up to a, obtain pleasure and wealth and all of these things that we think are going to fulfill us. So this message this morning isn't about money, it's not about jobs, it's not about possessions per se, but we are going to be talking today about what is valuable and what is of worth to you, and how that subject subject impacts your worship of God. Quickly, there's a series of analogies Jesus gives regarding the kingdom of God found in Matthew chapter 13 that talks about this idea of value. I'd like to read a portion From Matthew 13, verse 44, Jesus describing the kingdom says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, there's a whole sermon series here, but for the sake of this morning's discussion, I want you to understand this one principle. The treasure in the field and the pearl of great price were more valuable to to the finder than everything else they possessed. And they spent their greatest treasures as though they were nothing in order to gain this one thing of greater value that they found and that they discovered. But how many would have looked at these people from the outside looking in and thought, what are they doing? Why are they giving up everything that they've worked for, everything that they own, everything that they have to go buy a field? Well, they hadn't yet discovered the greatest treasure. 
And there's a difference between those who have discovered the greatest treasure and those who are watching people respond to the greatest treasure, but they haven't discovered it yet, as we'll see in a moment. But this, wor- this story we come to today, John chapter 12, it's an incredible story of worship and of sacrifice, of courage and of embarrassment, of humiliation and of praise. It's actually a story that is incredibly relevant for us today because it forces us to ask the question, how much is Jesus worth to me? Interestingly enough, the word worship in the English is a combination of two words. We have friendship, kinship, relationship, and we have worth-ship. In other words, worship is when we ascribe great worth to something and we respond by how much something is worth to us and that we give ourselves to those things. And I believe the same attacks and struggles and temptations and actions that Mary displayed 2,000 years ago in this meal, in this setting, still apply to our worship today. And so I'm going to get right into it. If you're taking notes, we're going to ask four questions from the passage today. First question is this. Verses 1 through 3 make us ask the question, is Jesus worth more than what I value the most? Is Jesus worth more than what I value the most? Verse 1 again gives us our setting. And then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who, was, uh, who had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. I like to call him Lazarus 2.0. And they made him a supper, and Martha served. That's not an unusual position for Martha. She's always serving. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound, a very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. First question, is Jesus worth more than what I value the most? Here we have an interesting setting because Jesus is with his disciples. So there's 12 of them plus Jesus plus Lazarus. So you have a room full of men. And Martha is there serving, and Mary, of course, is taking the posture of worship. This is her constant posture whenever she's in a room with Jesus. So it's intimidating in a, woman dom- uh, in a male-dominated society with a woman there, making herself vulnerable in this spot. Notice she takes one pound of very costly, of great value, oil of spikenard. Now later, Judas actually teaches us that this perfume is worth 300 denarii which was equivalent to one year's working wage. You could literally say that for a single Jewish woman in that culture, this was the greatest physical treasure or otherwise that she possessed. Perhaps some suggest that this was her dowry, prepared for her future marriage and husband in life. Perhaps it was a family heirloom passed down, collected over years. This oil of spikenard was very rare and very difficult to collect, and a pound of it was an incredible amount And notice the lavish way she takes her greatest treasure and she spends it all on Jesus. It really does go against all human logic, right? This isn't what they really teach you in Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. Just take everything and just... It would only have required... Now, I don't know if you guys... Does anyone have experience like I have experience with essential oils? I remember when essential oils entered into our house. (laughs) That it only takes, right, a couple drops. And that stuff is potent. That stuff is strong. Well, this essential oil of spikenards, notice that Mary does 
something irrational with it. It only would have taken a few drops to bless Jesus in a way that she was wanting to bless him. Even a few drops of her greatest treasure would have been a special sacrifice and a worthwhile offering. But notice she takes it all. She takes it all and she continues to pour it and pour it and wash and wipe with her hair as she's weeping the feet of Jesus. And what strikes me more is not that Mary gives all of this to Jesus. What strikes me in the passage is what I don't see. What was Jesus' response? Or should I say, how did Jesus not respond? Notice that Mary doesn't come with all of her oil and she begins dumping it on the feet of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say, hey Mary, that's enough. I'm not worth it. Keep some for yourself. Stop. He sits there with a smile, I would imagine, on his face as he's watching Mary pour out her greatest treasure as an act of love and worship on him, and he receives it all. And I believe that this is the case simply because Jesus is worth it. He is worth it. He knows that no one, that no treasure, no act of worship can be wasted on him. We might be able to say that true worship, whether it be in a song or through a life, occurs, listen, when the object of our sacrifice holds greater worth than the sacrifice itself. Worship occurs when the object that is what we're worshiping, holds greater value to us than what we give in order to worship. Church, you know this already, but Jesus will never apologize for being worthy of our very lives, of our surrender, of our submission to his will, and he shouldn't. For after all, he is the king who had no obligation who decided to give up his rights, lay down his life, pour out himself as a sacrifice for us. And Paul would say in Romans chapter 12, by the mercies of God, I plead with you, church, to offer yourself a living sacrifice to God, the members of your body as a living sacrifice to God, which is holy and acceptable, which is what? Your reasonable act of worship. It is the only logical response to a God who is so worthy. And who has given so much. Paul recognized this. You know, I found that sometimes I think people begrudge the Lord for not doing things their way or giving them things that they demanded or expected out of life. They live a lot of time bitter and angry, feeling like God let them down. I gave my life to Jesus. I stepped out in faith and everything turned south. Everything went wrong. And they become bitter at God as though God owed them something. I would suggest that often those feelings come not because of what God didn't do, but because we really haven't seen a clear enough picture of Jesus that has exposed us to the fact that he's worth it. You know, self-preservation never yields true joy and contentment or fruit in our lives. It's only in surrender. Sometimes I wonder myself, have I forgotten or do I actually not believe the words of Jesus? 
He who seeks to save his life will lose it. And he who, see, and who loses his life for my sake will find it, will save it. There's a backwardness in the kingdom of God when we find true surrender at the feet of Jesus. I think about times I have said no to Jesus because I was counting the costs of what it might cost me and I thought it was too much. That divine appointment, that nudge of the spirit, go speak to that person, go pray for that person, make this decision, be generous here, give here, do this, take a step of faith here and and I counted the cost and it was going to cost me too much and so I held on to the things that I thought were going to fulfill me, I I thought were going to protect me, I thought were great value to me only to recognize later that I probably missed out on a greater treasure of obeying Jesus. We'll see how that greater treasure comes in a moment. But this is why it's important to view every act of life as an act of worship to Christ first. You know, service, life will become burdensome and heavy. But if we view, right, remember what Paul said, he wrote it three times actually. 1 Corinthians 10, Colossians 3, Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink in word or in deed, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all in the name of, so it's a lens. The way I treat my wife, the way I raise my kids, the way I serve in my church, the way I work at the, in my workplace, the things I do, I'm viewing them all through the lens of this is to Christ first. And if it's to Christ first, then everything I do is going to flow out of that place and be seen as an act of worship. I think even when we corporately worship, this can be a reality. We come together, we're, we're about to enter into a worship conference this week at the church. Such a blessing today to see people standing to their feet, raising their hands in the presence of the Lord. But what do we value the most even when we corporately come to give glory and honor to God? Our, our, our pride, our dignity? Or are we willing to express our gratitude and our love and our surrender in that time of praise? So we need to ask ourselves here as we see Mary give her greatest treasure, uh, are the things, is Jesus worth more than what I value the most? Question number two, verses four and five, is Jesus worth more than the opinions of other people? Is Jesus worth more than the opinions of others? Verse four continues, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. We learn from Mark's gospel of this account that the other disciples, upon hearing Judas's remarks, begin to murmur and agree with Judas. So I want you, if, you're, if, if possible, as much as is possible, put yourself in the shoes of Mary. She is making herself vulnerable in front of all these men to give a gift of worship to Jesus. All of a sudden, Judas publicly rebukes her in front of everyone, and who comes to her defense? Immediately, nobody. Ultimately, Jesus. But immediately, everyone agrees with Judas. So the murmuring is going around. The talking is going around. Oh, look at Mary. What a waste. What she's doing. But notice Mary's response. It would be enough for probably any woman to stand up in the middle of the room crying and leave. But notice, she is not phased. Her focus at the moment was purely on Jesus and his worthiness of her worship. 
She is not distracted by the awkwardness or discomfort that her act of worship is causing those around her. Perhaps their criticism actually came less from a place of logic and more from a place of conviction. I notice that people who are naturally really, really critical of other Christians and how they're serving Jesus and the decisions they make for the Lord are often critical because they're insecure about their own faith. John, Peter, which one of them thought about bringing their greatest treasure and giving Jesus such a great gift? None of them. So what's easier, to repent or to criticize Mary? It's always easier to criticize than it is to learn and to grow from those around you who are serving Jesus well. This is not the first time Mary was criticized for her worship decisions. You might recall another situation where her and her sister were hosting Jesus for a meal in in Luke chapter 10. There we read that Martha had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached the Lord and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. This This always... I I try to put myself in the room because Martha comes to Jesus and she expects Jesus to be on her side. It's already her assumption. Jesus cares much more about service than he does about worship. Jesus cares much more about me doing this by myself than he does about Mary sitting there listening to him. What a shock it was for her when Jesus opened her mouth and said, Martha, Martha, double emphasis. You're so worried and troubled by so many things One thing is needed, and Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. He comes to Mary's defense again. There's nothing wrong with serving. Of course, we need servants. We need to serve. We need to do. We need to act. But worship comes first. Being strengthened by the word of Christ comes first. It's only from that place can effective service come to pass. But notice, again, I want to draw your attention back to at both occasions, Mary was not fazed by the opinions of everyone else around her, their criticism. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't look at criticism, learn, and learn from the wise and receive instruction. But when it comes to our focus on Jesus, we can't allow the critics to dictate the extent of our value system, our worship to Christ. Paul said this in Galatians chapter 1. He said, do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. The actions of the Christian and their dedication to Jesus must never be motivated by whether or not the unbelieving world or the insecure believers approve. Our worship is to Christ and to Christ alone. We should respect one another. All things should be done in humility and love but do not be motivated by, in your actions by what the next person next to you has to say about it. What does God have to say about it? If that is your first motivation, you will walk in life, through life, without fear. And I, I, I want to I exhort you in this because in today's society and culture, you guys, we need a church who has some courage about their commitment to Christ. Who, do, who doesn't buckle at the first sign of pressure or criticism or doubt or fear. 
but maintains their eyes and their focus on Jesus and Jesus alone. So, is Jesus worth more than what I value the most? Is Jesus worth more than the opinions of others? Third question, is Jesus worth more than the enemy's lies? Is Jesus worth more than the enemy's lies? Notice who pipes up with the first objection. None other than Judas. And I love John's, John always gives him that identifier, the one who portrayed Jesus. But I want you to observe that Judas's objection to Mary's sacrifice at the time seemed fairly reasonable to everyone else at the table. Couldn't a year's worth of wages be used for something more productive? Something more meaningful? Something that could provide a concrete and measurable impact? After all, the poor people around us could be fed for a lifetime on that much money. Everyone's saying, oh yeah, that's pretty, well, that's a pretty good idea, yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense, Judas. You're onto something here. Three observations. First of all, it wasn't Judas's perfume. <laughs> what gives him the right to have an opinion about how someone else's someone else uses their stuff to worship Jesus with? Second observation is that. Judas's internal motive, listen carefully, Judas's internal motive was different than his expressed motive. His internal motive was different than his expressed motive. In, in other words, what he communicated was different than what he was saying in his own heart, what his ultimately ultimate desire was. We're told there that he kept the money bag. Now, why, why Jesus let Judas keep the money bag is a whole other interesting sermon within itself. But Judas had the money bag, and we're told that he used to dip his hands into it whenever he'd like to use it for his own personal gain. In other words, Judas was a thief who lied about his intentions to get more money. It's just conjecture, and I don't know how much value the question is, but sometimes I ask myself these kind of questions in my mind. Uh, would, Judas, would Judas have sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver if he had 300 denarii in his money bag? It's quite a disparity between those two amounts. But this is the most important because in these observations, here's what we find. Judas typifies Satan in this story. Judas is a type of Satan in this story. Satan is always mocking and challenging challenging the Christian's worship. Why don't you spend your time, your effort, your resources, your talents doing something worthwhile? What are you really going to accomplish by giving your all to Jesus? What a waste of your potential. You could go make something of yourself in this world. You could stop wasting your time behind the scenes for the appreciation of no one. And you know what Satan even does? He'll be fine with with social justice. Go feed the poor. Go do something nice for somebody. Go fight a cultural battle. As long as you keep Jesus out of it. But what good is any of our 
cultural change or battles or fights out there if Jesus isn't at the center of our worship in here? But Judas expressed motive. Why are you wasting your time? Go do something worthwhile. You don't need Jesus. But what's Judas's internal motive? What's Satan's internal motive? Satan is the ultimate worship hog, worship thief. When Satan criticizes the Christian's act of worship, it's only for one reason. Because he wants the worship for himself. He wants a Christian, he wants a human being to worship anything and everything else that they could possibly pour themselves into other than Christ. And like Judas, Satan is over there yapping constantly. Lies about our identity, about our worth, about our ministry, about our work, about who, who appreciates us. And, and yet, his attempt is to get a, our eyes off Christ. And focus on things that are not as important. So how do we respond to these kind of feelings and these kind of voices? By blocking out the enemy's voice. Jesus silences Judas and contradicts his logic. No, Mary is doing the right thing. Mary has chosen the right work. Why? Because I have a plan for this work, Jesus would say. We need to let Jesus defend our worship rather than believing the enemy's accusations. Many times we stop giving Jesus what he deserves just because we're listening to all the wrong voices. We need to turn down the voices around us and turn up the word of God. Tune into the Holy Spirit and see what Jesus is requiring and asking of us to do. Finally, the fourth question that we ask in this story, is Jesus worth more than the potential lack of return? Is Jesus worth more than the potential lack of return? The other thing that strikes me about Mary's sacrifice is she didn't seem to indicate or care or think of what she might get back from Jesus for giving him what she valued the most. In other words, the mentality wasn't, well, I'm giving something valuable to Jesus, so I really hope he gives me something better in return. No, the attitude was, I'm giving my all to Jesus simply because he's worth it. If I get nothing, he's still worth it. I couldn't have spent my treasure, she would say, in a better way, simply because it was him. Now, what she didn't know is that Jesus was going to give her a far greater reward. Matthew 26, Jesus adds, Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached in all the world, what she has done will also be told in her memory. That's quite a gift. That Jesus would say, this is, su- this is such a picture of the gospel. This pouring out of this sacrifice. I will go to the cross. I will pour out my life as a sacrifice for sin. And everywhere that message goes, this message is going to come alongside of it. It's pretty amazing. But she couldn't have seen that at the time. She didn't know the eternal mind of God. And we don't. Our obedience is not predicated on What do I get immediately from an act of obedience and worship to God? No, he's worth it. I'll give it to him. I'll do whatever he wants me to do because I'm so consumed with his majesty, his glory, his goodness, his love. And there is a plan God's working that I can't see yet. I don't know yet. This side of eternity, I may never know. 
And what she didn't know is what Jesus says at the end. Jesus said, she's preparing me for my burial. Up until this point, Jesus had been parroting, right? Telling his disciples, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. For some reason, they couldn't get it through their thick skulls. They're still thinking, Jesus is going to take over. We're all going to be kings. We're going to have thrones. It's going to be great. And Jesus is like, I'm going to die. Yet Mary, with the heart of sensitivity, I think she somehow understood where this was all leading. She somehow saw what the other guys didn't see. She wanted to give Jesus a gift that was worthy of his sacrifice. She was preparing for Jesus' burial. Now this event happens the week before leading up to Passover, which means what? Jesus is on the road to the cross. This is that week. So Jesus will go with his disciples up into an upper room for a meal. All of the disciples will walk into the room. They'll walk past this big cylinder, or this, this big uh, container that was full of water with a rag that would have been meant for the slave, the nobody, the nameless, to wash your feet, prepare you for the meal. They all walk in trying to find the best seat at the table. Jesus stands from the meal. He takes off his clothes. He wraps himself in a slave's towel. He grabs that basin of water, and he comes and he washes each one of his disciples' feet. Let me ask you a question. That night, who washed Jesus' feet? Nobody. Why? Because Mary washed them just a few days earlier. Back to the essential oils. I was struggling with a cold last week. My wife put all these essential oils on my chest. And I tell you, man, the minute those went on, it's like, woo, I smell that. We got in the car, and we had some friends come in the car, and they said, someone cooking something? <laughs> Why? Be- because oil is, is so fragrant. It's so fragrant, it soaks into the skin. Back then, you didn't take showers, you didn't have baths. No one washed Jesus' feet, which means what? Not a couple drops, one pound of the most fragrant oil you could imagine was soaked into Jesus' feet, soaked into his skin, soaked into his legs. Everywhere he went, it smelled like Mary's worship. So when he went the next day and he was nailed to a cross, he hung upon the cross. And all around the cross with the smell of death, of feces, of urine, of blood. And as Jesus hung on that cross, pouring himself out as an offering for sin, every single breath, agonizing breath, as he pierced, pa- piercing pain ran through his hands and his feet, as he pushed himself up to breathe, it was... <gasps> And every single breath cutting through the smell of death and urine and feces and blood was the smell of Mary's worship. Fragrance that would bring beauty to the pain. Life into the death. I wonder if she could have even known the value of what that would be to the Savior 
as in his humanity and divinity, absorbed the wrath of God and the sin of mankind on his shoulders. And as he's smelling Mary's incense, he is at the same time pouring himself out as a fragrant offering, the Bible says, to God. Not only that, but this would have been a marker, a memory marker. Have you ever gone back to a place uh, and you smell a certain smell and all of a sudden memories come rushing back of something? Well, not only did this perfume signify the sacrifice that Jesus was making, we're told in the story that the fragrance filled the entire room And so all of the disciples knew what that act of worship smelled like. Which means not only was it on Christ, but it was also on who else? On Mary. It was all in her hair. It was all in her hands. Which means everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. (laughs) Seriously, though, It reminds me of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He said, we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we're the aroma of death leading to death. To To the other we are the aroma of life leading to life. Who is sufficient for such things? When we are living lives of worship dedicated to Jesus, we are going to smell good to some and really bad to others but we will not be odorless. There will be something about our lives and our actions and our words that people look at and say, they have found something that was worth it. And it's something that transcends all of the stuff that is here today and gone tomorrow. It's that one that lasts forever. And as a picture of worship, I want to make, make it clear that this is not a message calling everyone to go take everything valuable you have, go sell it, live in poverty so you can really worship God. If you're hearing that, change your perspective for a moment. That's not the message at all. The message is this, that like Mary, the closer you get to Jesus, And the more clearly you see him, the more valuable he becomes and the more his value eclipses everything else that matters to you. That the closer you get to Jesus, to the person of Christ, the less concerned you become about how spiritual or unspiritual other people think you are. And the more concerned you become about what Jesus thinks of your gift. That the closer and more clearly you see Jesus, the more consumed you become with Christ, the less concerned you are with what God can do for you. And the more consumed you become with how can I give the little I have and the short time I have to do something that matters for him. And that's why there is a great challenge in this passage. Because it really is a good measure of where our awe is of God of Christ and how our life is reflecting 
those truths. And so I would close simply with the statement, wasted worship, that was the title of the message. Wasted worship? There's no such thing as wasted worship unless we waste our worship on anyone or anything other than Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, Mary's act today still speaks. It's almost like we can, in our, in our mind of minds, we can smell the, the aroma through this passage of love being poured out, of affection towards Christ, of Jesus first, and everything else comes after. And oh Lord, we want to have that aroma in our lives. We want to look at our lives and say, not what are my ambitions? What are my dreams? What do I want to hold on to? What do I want to self-preserve? No. We look at our lives and we say, Lord, how can I be used? Who do you want me to invest in or disciple? How do you want, who do you want me to preach the gospel to? How do you want me to be generous and give? How do you want me to step outside my comfort zone? What kind of steps of faith do you want me to take, Lord? Because I want to live a life that is poured out as an offering. And so, Lord, may there be no guilt over this, but may there be a simply a view of Jesus that is refreshed in our minds. You are so good. You gave your life for us. What we have gained in you, <laughs> it's indescribable. It's, it's more valuable than any other treasure, hands down. Eternal life, forgiveness of sins, one with God, peace with the Father. It's more than we could ever imagine. And so, Lord, I pray that we would once again have a fresh view of you and be so amazed that we go out of this place living our lives as a fragrant offering. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.